Welcome, my name is David Yoakum. I'm the director of the lab at DC. It is my true pleasure to have with us today uh, Catherine Newcomer, who is the director of the Trackenberg School of Public Policy and Public Administration at George Washington University. You're also a fellow with the National Academy of the Public Administration and the current president of the American Evaluation Association. And as you might guess from the collection of those titles, they're truly a world expert in really all matters of research design and program evaluation, which is going to be the topic for us today. And I guess I'd like to start off with a kind of a big question, which we'll unpack throughout our time together, but starting with this kind of label when we talk about evidence-based policymaking. And this gets thrown around in circles all the time. What do, you, what do we mean when we talk about evidence-based policymaking? It's an excellent question because it's a, a very broad mantra, and it's actually understood to be different kind of things by different people. Um, many people mean it, or they say it, to, say, to basically advocate that politicians and top-level decision-makers should be deciding between different uh, options in terms of policies and programs based upon evidence of whether they work or they don't work and therefore to make sure they have some evidence to, to make these very top-level decisions. Like, this is the kind of program or policy we should go with because we have the evidence that it works. And so there's, that's what some people mean. But then you also hear terms like data-informed or data-driven decision-making. And it can be people at more of a programmatic or portfolio level that are making decisions. Again, managers, but not the politicians, not the people in the city council or whatever, but are looking at um, trends to see whether or not there's greater need in different areas for uh, programs and so on. But you also have just the basic people on the ground who are looking at data, and even if they aren't analyzing with regressions or whatever, they're looking at trends in the people they're serving at an end street village of homeless women or in um, different kinds of uh, public health interventions or whatever that are, that are utilizing data about what appears to be more beneficial. Um, and to inform their own decision making. And so it could be at any of these levels. Frankly, in the kind of debate you see, whether it be in the New Yorker or the Washington Post, it's probably the people that are advocating at the higher level that we need to do a better job in, to save money in government but not investing in programs that work or don't. But that's kind of simplistic because, in fact, as you know, in government, implementation is always a huge challenge. So do you know that the program didn't work because the theory is wrong or because it wasn't implemented appropriately or because it wasn't um, directed at the right people at the right time? It's, it's just more complex than making a go or no-go decision. Right. So how, how new or unique is this? Because you know, if I'm someone on the street who hasn't been in the policy circles about this and I suddenly start to hear, oh, we're going to start to use, we're going to start making decisions that are based on fact. The first reaction I might have is, well, what have you been doing this whole time, right? And most people, if you talk to them, they yeah. tend to think, like, the reason we're doing this program is because we think it works and we yeah. know it works. That's, that's, yeah, you're absolutely right because, frankly, if you go, look back, and I've looked sort of the genealogy of these different terms that were, have been used, we talked about effectiveness in government first, you know, like in the 60s. Uh, at the federal level, you have the, but there's a budget office. There's a budget office in D.C. They're yep. Typically, budget officers have been saying, but how do we know the program's effective? But it tend to be that would be the term used. We want to know, are these effective policies or, or interventions? 
And then you know, with, when you had the new public management and neoliberalism in the 80s and 90s, it got to be well, like, we want to look at those results, those outcomes. You had the Government Performance and Results Act passed in 1993 in the, the federal level. GPRA. GPRA. And it was based on really informed by experience at the local level of government, starting in California, where they're at the, and it's easy, frankly, I think it's easy at the local level of government, you can get data more quickly and, uh, from on, literally on the ground uh, about whether it's potholes or number of homeless or what's going on in, you know, schools, um, in test scores or whatever, and to look more quickly to get more rapid data mm -hmm. that can help you inform further decisions. And so then that was sort of put into law at the federal level. But the federal level is so much, you know, they're dependent upon the data from the local level and the state level. And the, it, it's it's much more difficult to monitor in a much more real-time sense. You know, in on a yearly basis, you can see that the number of cigarettes per capita smoked in the U.S. has been going down. Okay? But that's at a very high level. And I don't even know. I haven't even probed you know, how we get those data. Are they surveys? I don't know. Right. But um, they're relying upon a bunch of levels of aggregation. Right. Well, so for the different parts of evidence that might be relevant for talking about whether a program works or not, you started to touch on this, but I want to unpack it a little bit. There is at least two categories that come to my mind, but you wrote the book on this, so you should tell me about the other ones and kind of explain them. You might be interested in the sort of data on just as we're trying to put something out into the field, are we doing that effectively? Like, are the people getting served? Like, are there, are there enough vaccinations that are going out or whatever the case might be? And there's another category of the thing we've just done, does it actually do what we hope it does? Mm -hmm. Sort of outcome mm -hmm. one. Mm -hmm. Are those the two big ones? And or what, how should we be thinking about the well, components? Well, I think that they're not like two buckets, but it's continua. There's so many different kinds of questions that we can raise about programs and policies. From, for example, is there a need or is there a changing need uh, in terms of understanding the problem? If you think about it, you could first analyze what is the problem we're addressing and then what, what should we do? And then we come up with a plan and then do we implement the plan the way we had, had hoped to? So we would call that like an implementation study or an implementation evaluation. As opposed to looking down the line, the outcome evaluation might be, are we seeing the outcomes we expected to see? And then going even further, is the impact on affecting that pro problem that we originally wanted to address, are we seeing it? Or you know, can we rule out other changes in the society, in the nature of the problem, that could help us understand, but did our, whatever we did, our intervention, did it have the intended impact? So all along the way, there's all kinds of really important questions, but particularly in complex governments like ours, um, implementation is extremely important. Are we reaching the right people? Are we training? You know, for example, it, there are, um, important assumptions we need to address about programs and policies. Like, say you have a new program for that you're going to implement uh, in high schools to, to improve graduation rates. But it depends upon training teachers and um, the advisors, the crew advisors. But you only hold the training on Saturdays. Later you find out that very few teachers and career advisors attended. Wow! 
Well, if they didn't attend the training, how do you expect them to, to implement the program? So you might say, well, God, that's kind of minor. Well, yeah, but still, it could have a huge impact on implementation if you don't actually train the people that are supposed to be delivering whatever the new curriculum or counseling was. Right. Well, how do you think government is doing, sort of if you were to give a report card, in terms of their, their use of evidence, whether it's implementation evidence, outcome evidence, or otherwise? And I'm curious to kind of think about that also in sort of the arc of how government has been changing over the last 30 or 40 years, which you've, you've looked at quite a bit. So uh, the answer, of course, is it depends. There are pockets of excellence when they, where they do a great job at using uh, data. Uh, that is, it becomes uh, evidence-informed because they're using data to uh, affect their decision-making. But it, it varies greatly. And if you think about it, um, you know, there's in medicine, where there are much more clear kinds of interventions that are much more simple that you uh, can track, uh, they're, they're probably doing a great job. It's still difficult to get, for example, if you find um, best practices in certain, some kind of um, health care delivery, um, and maybe the CDC says this is a way to go, but how, you know, it has to trickle down to get to the counties and to the villages all the way down in, in a very complex system. It's kind of like getting a new Supreme Court decision implemented all the way down to the mm -hmm. village and county level. Um, so it takes a while. Um, there are other areas in which it's, it's very, very difficult. So, for example, in uh, we have public diplomacy that our Department of State does. How well are we doing and how well are we getting evidence on our public diplomacy in Syria or or Honduras, you know, so there's, it, it totally depends. But let me just say, it's, there are some areas where they're doing really good things. The Pew uh, MacArthur Results First Initiative has been following things they're doing at the state level. And for example, they recently released a, a study, I think it was November, looking at states, and, and Utah was doing a lot of really good things. Hey, Mississippi was doing a lot of good things yeah. in particular areas. So, you can't say a particular government is doing great across the board, but you might say that, well, in education and health, Utah's looking, doing great, or Omaha, Nebraska. So um, do, do all governments get straight A's all across the board? No. Are there certain areas where we have a long way to go in terms of accumulating evidence? Yes. But there are also areas, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, they do great work. They analyze predictors of accidents and so on. We have, there are great data out there. I just can't say that it's like everywhere and everybody yeah. uses it. Right. And as you know, there's politics too. And there are going to be um, politicians who are going to, we call it symbolic or political use of data, will use data that was going to be supporting a view they already held. Mm -hmm. That's not going to go away. Right. Well, so thinking about those places where they are using evidence well, it's actually directly influencing how they're spending money, staffing, just, you know, designing policies versus those that maybe don't. Do you glean any kind of thoughts on the enabling conditions or the sort of features that tend to be in place for those places that do better than others that are struggling to either generate or use evidence? Well, the, you know, the two key things are political will and capacity. And so first, you have to have the politicians and the people they appoint who are open and willing to listen. And then the capacity, you need to provide uh, staff and, um, and also program managers that are extremely um, willing and desirous of learning. Mm -hmm. And then create, and there's a lot of books written about learning cultures. 
you have to have an organizational culture, both within the government and within the particular agencies, in which learning is promoted, in which making mistakes or errors is okay as long as you learn from it. But there, that takes a lot to create that kind of culture. And government, in some ways fairly, in some ways maybe not, it's not a fair judgment across the board, but are perceived as having cultures that are not necessarily learning oriented. More, uh, they're more sort of risk averse and so on. And so- More so than other private firms or something like that. Mm -hmm, exactly. And so um, you need to think about the organizational culture and what, what incentives need to be given to reward innovative thinking and utilize, utilization of data. You know, like for example, um, if you have a grant program, why not give a prize or a bonus or at least a gold plaque to the grantees that learn from analyzing their own data and come up with some new innovative strategies? Let's reward that, right. you know, and get the word out that we want you to learn from data and demonstrate how you improved the services you're providing because you analyze data, right. for, just for example. And why did, again, I come back to wondering why this doesn't happen more just naturally because, again, I think most people want to think that they're doing things that are grounded in fact and they want their things that they're spending a lot of time on to work. And so, you know, I've never really encountered anyone who's just said bluntly, oh, I don't, I just don't care at all that works. And I agree with you. I think that people do care. I don't, and, and most of the people that, Virtually all the people I know that work in government are there because they want to make a difference right. and they want to improve lives of the people in their jurisdiction or under, that are affected by their agency. And that I think that they are probably intuitively learning about things that are working. They just aren't look, you know, looking at regressions or contingency tables and analyzing data. But they are, you know, um, processing in a, uh, a real-time basis what seems to be working. It's just that a lot of times people are really, really busy. They don't take the time to reflect and step back and say, wait a second. You know, for example, they talk about single loop learning and double loop mm -hmm. learning. And single learning, you, you learn something and you can quickly make, you can make a change. You can make a change to the website because you get complaints that people didn't like to have to, you know, hit the button three, four different times to get what they wanted. That's something you can, you can make a change. It's pretty easy. But if you learn that there's something wrong with the whole system, how do we rethink, you know, let's learn about way, how are we even approaching the way we're delivering this system? You know, people, it, you need time. You need time. You need people devoted to what in the military they call them after action reports where, at, you know, let's see, well, how did that battle go? What did we do wrong? What did we do right? But it takes time. You have to devote the time and the mental energy to, to do that. Right. And we don't, you know, sometimes people just don't have the time. Right. You have great caseworkers, social workers, nurses, nurse practitioners, doctors, teachers who are wonderful and maybe they're great and they just, they aren't like stopping and saying, oh, now is the time to analyze the evidence. They're really busy and I'm not saying they aren't doing a great job of what they're doing. So to calling it evidence-based policy can, can, I think, uh, unfortunately, infuse a sense of sort of uncertainty and like, oh, am I doing something wrong? I don't, what does it mean? What am I not doing? It can induce some inadequate feelings of inadequacy that, that what does it mean? What am I supposed to be doing that right. I'm not doing? Right. And what came to mind when you were saying that it was an observation you made that struck me around how data is not the same thing as evidence. And there's a difference. What, 
what do you mean by that? I mean that there's a lot of data out there that we never use. We only, I would call evidence, is the data we actually bring into use, that we put in a report or in a briefing or in a dis discussion at staff meeting or whatever. It's, it's when data are used to support a claim, a claim like we're doing really good or we're doing really poorly for the um, residents of Board 8, um, that when you're using data to support a claim you're making, then I call it evidence. Right. And the reason that comes to mind is that the actual work of sort of thinking about the data in a way that is contextualized to the policy issue involves articulating what is the empirical issue we're trying to solve, what's the constraints we're dealing with. Like you really, that's in my experience with the lab, typically the hardest part is mapping out all of those types of things. And right. if all you do is sort of throw up a bunch of data on a dashboard without doing the legwork to understand how to tailor it to the decision-making context, it can be, you can leave a decision-maker sort of stranded, particularly if they're stretched on time. Not only the decision-maker, but one of the key um, Achilles heels of these kinds of dashboards is that if the people in the organization don't feel the data are valid and reliable, they become very cynical. Hmm. And they think, oh, great, it's up on the website, but everybody knows that those data are not credible. Right. That's, that's, that can be really have a negative effect. Right. Well, so another thing you talked about is how when we're thinking about the evidence-based kind of um, that is out there, there's both the demand component and the supply component. And you need both these. Or you have people that want to actually have evidence and use it, and then you need to have the sort of capacity to be able to generate it. Um, let's maybe think a little bit about the latter first in the supply of evidence. I'm curious what you think is kind of the current uh, state of the world in terms of how much evidence there is and then kind of then drilling down into what are the kind of things an organization like a, a government agency, you know, how should they be a approaching this issue of finding evidence that exists or generating evidence whenever it doesn't exist? So. The notion of human-centered design goes back for years and years and years, and we should be designing programs, policies, as well as management information systems, data systems, um, to to be oriented to what we, you know, the kinds of the decisions and the uh, kinds of questions that we have. You need to get people at the table, and again, it takes time. People need to be at the table. You need to get people who have the contextual knowledge of how a program really runs on the ground at the table along with the people that are going to be uh, collecting data, analyzing data, running the regressions, whatever, um, along with the people that are perhaps staffers to the city council or to the, the secretary of whatever uh, agency it is. Um, they need to talk and listen. And when you don't have that kind of really stakeholder buy-in and authentic talking and listening and communications, you can end up with expensive information uh, systems that don't spit out the data that the people on the ground need, for example. And that happens a lot. Mm -hmm. And then you've invested these millions of dollars into a system that's not providing data disaggregatable, I think that's a word, mm -hmm. uh, in ways that the people really need it. But like, oh, we already invested in that system, we can't change it. So these things happen all the time. And it's, it's not that the people on the ground didn't have really good things to say. And, and the people that from the political side that said, but these are the kinds of questions we have. They just, they, you didn't get them all together in actually having authentic, good communications. Instead, you went ahead and paid that contractor to design a system and then, oops. Right, right. Well, so who's 
you think in the best position to facilitate that kind of bringing together? You need knowledge brokers. You need people that that's their job. It can't be. So, for example, the federal government, first it was by an executive order under George W. Bush, and then it was in the GPRA Modernization Act, said we need performance improvement officers in all the agencies. What happened was that people that in very, very busy people that were already chief financial officer or the budget officer would put, oh, I'll be that too. And, and then literally surveys showed that they spent maybe 15% of their time on that. Well, nobody can actually serve well an organization to help them perform this knowledge brokering of asking the, the right appropriate questions and figuring out how to answer them when they're doing it with, you know, a few minutes uh, a week. Right. And, and so you need people that are, are, and I don't care what you call them, but they can't also be performing five other jobs mm -hmm. and they need to have appropriate skills. They, that, you know, as you know, sometimes people rise in an agency because they were a darn good engineer or they were a great general counsel. And now, oops, now they're going to be the director of an agency, but they don't really have the background in public health or whatever it is, you know. And so you need the knowledge brokers who have that contextual wisdom that can talk and create demand among the decision makers, but also talk to the data analyst. You know, for example, data analytics has been a cool new term. Well, we've been doing data analytics my entire career. That's not new. It's just that we put new pretty names on things, but it, I, you can have a data analyst from the best school, the best program. That does not mean they're going to be able to be a really good knowledge broker, though. There's other kinds of skills and contextual wisdom and, and so on that are needed. Right. And I guess if you're a manager of an agency, you could be thinking about either hiring people specifically to do this or identifying staff you have exist, existing who would be great at Absolutely. And, and freeing yeah. up some of their yeah. time. Yeah, it, but they need to have the time to do it. Right. And you don't have to have a PhD in statistics or research methodology. Uh, but if you've been working in an area and you un you understand uh, the different kinds of data, reliability, validity, all that kind of stuff, um, and you really know the area, you're right. It's not like we're going to have to go and create a new degree to give these, these people, but um, contextual wisdom is extremely important. That's why it's really hard to just hire some consulting firm, come and do it, and then you leave. Right, right. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's why you see the way we've been structuring the lab and kind of the network is involved being both inside government, but also identifying and kind of bringing together the amazing talent that's already spread out across agencies because they do have this context that's hard mm -hmm. to replicate if you just kind of drop in and drop out. You also have the advantage of being in, in one of the top, top at least, of top three or so uh, most educated cities in the United States of America. Lots of people that are happy to work in a volunteer basis or, you know, for example, I've been teaching over three decades a program valuation class and we give pro bono uh, expertise to government agencies and nonprofits every single year. Right. And all of our capstone seminars, there's so much um, supply of, of people that are willing to be involved in your network. So you guys have a huge advantage. Right. So, okay, so freeing up someone's time could be a, a knowledge broker to help with the supply part. Let's now think on the demand side. What well, that's we what they do. They work with the, um, the decision makers. That's their whole point. They're the, in the intermediary to help them figure out what they need to know, create learning agendas. 
For example, that's one of the um, uh, recommendations in the Commission Evidence-Based Policy Report, right. that you need to figure out, and, and it's like, for anything you do in life, you need to have a plan, and you need to stick to it. And so, if you can't just say, oh, yeah, when I get around to it, I'm going to learn how to improve my program. No, it's like setting, you know, deadlines about these are the kinds of questions I want to have answered. I want to have them answered by, you know, January 1st, 2018, and then I'm going to build on those to, uh, to address new questions. But coming up and writing it down, we're having to learn, and that's, again, the, the knowledge broker can create, co-create mm -hmm. by helping coach um, the decision makers with their learning agendas. Right. Is right. If, let's say that I've just been designated as a knowledge broker for a particular agency. I take it there could be the sort of audience of who trying to stimulate the demand for this for could be at a lot of different oh, levels. Yeah. It could be a deputy mayor, it could be an agency director. It might be someone working at the front desk, you know, customer serving sort of person. How? I mean, where do you where do you start? Well, I think I probably start at the middle and the top. I mean, you you need to have leadership commitment to, to learning and to improving what we do through the use of data that we're going to collect and analyze. And it needs to be um, incentivized throughout the organization. But who does that are the leadership. Now, leadership, yes, would be a deputy mayor, but it would also be the head of the agency. It would be the head of uh, various divisions and so on. So you need to have that cascading leadership that's all understanding and in sync, in alignment with what the goals are. Right. In all of this, what do you think are the things that people in the community can do? I mean, this is the other stakeholder that we've not mentioned that's the ultimate stakeholder in all of this is the people that are impacted by what government is doing. And it seems like they have a very special amount of leverage to demand more evidence. But that doesn't always happen, it doesn't seem. Well, as I said, you guys have one of the most educated communities in the United States of America. You have a lot of really smart people here who I'm sure would be willing to serve on citizen panels, citizen task force, and to, to offer expertise. I mean, there's kind of the expertise you get because you have a PhD or a law degree after your name, but there's also the expertise is that you have, have raised three teenage kids and you understand teens. So there's a lot of different kinds of knowledge you need to leverage, but you could definitely do that. And I know you have citizen panels and, and you have different ways for citizens to get involved. But that's what I strongly would urge the each agency. You know, I know there are advisory panels uh, for federal agencies. I'm sure they have them here. But um, you could definitely get people that are interested in promoting the use of data to improve services. Right. So I'd like to round out the discussion thinking of moving forward. And there's a big event that happened with the Commission on Evidence-Based Policymaking. They just released a report um, a couple days ago, last week. Very soon, very recently. Seventh, yeah. um, what were your big takeaways from the report? I was very excited about it. The key um, messaging signaling were that we're talking about making this bipartisan because the use of evidence is, is, should be bipartisan. This is not one side or the other. And they talked a lot about evidence building capacity. And that, they, uh, that means that it's about figuring out how to improve capacity. And as I was saying earlier, the capacity is both the supply of the information, but figuring out you know, how to, to cultivate uh, more demand or right. requests for information. And so they talk about the availability of data, access to data with privacy. 
uh, forefront um, of the data, and then also this capacity. So I'm I'm very excited about um, the ideas they they came up with, and they have I think it's 22 recommendations that are very um, very well reasoned. They had uh, it was very exciting, and as the um, as I've heard the commissioners say that it was very gratifying because they feel that there are some very practical recommendations that could be implemented, and they as opposed to sometimes there are government commissions that come out with sort of high blown like this you know we need to reduce whatever whatever and nothing ever happens. Right. But I think it's very realistic. They're talking about the fact that. Ryan is going to have a bill that's good. He's, I, evidently, they're talking about two different bills that are going to be proposed, one by the end of this calendar year and then another one next year that would um, actually put some of these recommendations into law. And actually fund a new need to do it? Now, that's a really good question. <laughs> do I want to keep asking on this or just take the smile as, as a potential? Uh, okay. Well, what about what about for you? What's on the horizon in terms of your work? What should we be excited well, to see coming? Well, so the, the American Evaluation Association conference is November eighth through eleventh in Washington D.C. at the Wardman Marriott up on the Red Line near the zoo, and it is incredible. About four thousand people from across the world. About twenty percent come from outside the country. Um, talking about innovative ways to evaluate programs and policies. 52 concurrent sessions at every every hour uh, for three and a half days. It's it's a very large, um, it's a great learning opportunity. And we keep the price very low so that it's accessible to people across government and the nonprofit sector. It's an amazing learning opportunity. I've worked with a, I had a committee of 17 people from seven different countries that helped me put it together. And the theme is learning. It's from learning to action and learning from others, learning about what works and why, learning about use and users um, about of evidence. That's great. That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time and that the yes. conference and other events seem really wonderful. I'll sort of just shamelessly plug that if you're excited about this type of work in the district, the Lab at DC is meant to provide a platform for exactly this type of evidence-based community. And so it's people inside government, partner with people at universities and beyond and in the community to try to come together and talk about what evidence we might have and where we don't have sufficient evidence, how can we start to generate it? So I invite you to come to the lab at thelab.dc.gov and sign up for that. Thank you again. Thank you.